This is Who She Knows, a podcast produced by She Knows Media. And I'm your host, Elisa Camahort-Page. Welcome to the show. Before we get into it, if, if you have a moment and you could rate our podcast on iTunes, that would be really helpful. Thank you. Um, But today, I'm really excited because I'm speaking with Carla Hall. She's one of the hosts on The Chew. She's also a trained chef and owner of the restaurant Carla Hall's Southern Kitchen in Brooklyn. And she's author of several cookbooks, including Carla's Comfort Food, Favorite Dishes from Around the World, and Cooking with Love, Comfort Food That Hugs You. Carla, hello. Welcome to Who She Knows. Thank you. Hello. Nice to be here. I don't think I know of another person who went from being a CPA to a model to a celebrity chef. Like, how, I would just love to know, like, how did that trajectory happen? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up as, you know, as a little girl? And, um, and how, how did you get to where you are, where most people started to really become aware of you as a chef? Well, I, I think, well, first of all, I wanted to be an actress. I was very much a part of like this whole theater scene from 12 to 17. Mm. I was in a theater group and um, I danced in high school. I thought that's what I was going to do. And um, yeah, so things kind of changed and I, I didn't get into Boston University and that's where I wanted to go to conservatory and I ended up going to Howard University because that's where my sister was going and mm. a really good friend of hers and I and I liked my accounting teacher so I said well if I can't do theater in Boston then I guess I'll just major in accounting <laughs> <laughs> that's the next logical step <laughs> I know I think the thing that people don't know about me is that I I actually love numbers and puzzles I still love a good spreadsheet I <laughs> Um, that's sort of how my mind works. Okay, um, you got your inner nerd. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit of a nerd. I love food science and all of that. Mm. And when I, um, I worked for Price Waterhouse in Tampa, Florida. And when I got to the point where I just was really hating my job, because I probably shouldn't have done it anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was one thing to study it. It's another thing to practice it. I, mm-hmm. I made the decision at 24 that um, I was in search of my perfect job. I just didn't want to be 40 and hate my job. I think that was my biggest fear. Oh, yeah. So I quit and I went to Paris and I was modeling, but the modeling started at Howard University and the fashion shows. It continued when I was in Tampa, Florida. So things that seem nonsensical and, um, I mean, they, they had roots somewhere. Mm-hmm. I just kept saying yes to experiences. I encourage people to do that, just to say yes, figure it out. Oh, I so relate to that because I was a theater major in college and I moved to New York and did that whole starving actor thing. And in fact, I had kind of the opposite of you because I went to a 40th birthday party for a fellow quote unquote actor who was really a waiter who hadn't gone on an audition in like 10 years. And I was maybe 24 and I was like, oh, my God, this cannot be me in 10 years. I like I <laughs> just that's a scary thought. So I actually moved back to California and my first job was uh, I was in the financial industry and I ended up doing accounting <laughs> for commodity wow. traders. Oh my God. 
believe it. Yeah. So, and the thing is, I'd been math phobic in school, but then I discovered the beauty of numbers. Like if you're, if you're balancing something and you're off by a penny, if you just like work hard enough, you will find that penny. There's something beautiful about that. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's funny. I kind of had a little bit of the reverse path there. (laughs) I went from actor to accounting person. Um, So you, how many years did you live in Europe? I lived there for about two and a half years. I was in Paris, and then I was going back and forth Paris to New York, and then I was in um, Milan, and then I spent time in London. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it was in London that my mother got sick, and so I came back home, and Mm. once she was okay, I was like, okay, now it's time to sort of figure out out what I want to do. But in the meantime, I had started cooking when I was in Paris, not even not necessarily cooking, but noticing food. I always hmm. loved to eat, but I was never interested in actually cooking. I, ah, I'm so like, you, let people cook ah. and I will enjoy the food <laughs> that you make. <laughs> so you didn't have to cook as a kid growing up? You're, you, no one ever put you to work to do a little cooking? Nope. Oh, nice. Nope. And I think it's because my mother really didn't enjoy cooking. She, she, she doesn't, my mother eats for sustenance, which is interesting in and of itself because I, I just eat because I love food. Mm -hmm. I start thinking about the first meal of the day when I'm in bed and I start thinking about the (laughs) next meal when I'm having the meal that I'm eating. I love, I love to eat, but my mother wasn't like that. So she, she just sort of, you know, she, we went to my grandmother's house for Sunday supper mainly because she didn't want to eat. And then she, I mean, she didn't want to cook. Right. We would bring leftovers home. So we would have those for a couple of days, you know, <laughs> once we got like Monday yeah. and Tuesday. She had five things that she basically made. You wow. know, she would do um, a meatloaf. She would do a roast, a beef roast. And um, she would do like the shake and bake chicken. We would have pancakes sometimes for dinner, which was amazing. I loved it. And, uh, you know, and spaghetti. Well, you and I are about, a, I think, a month apart in age from what I was seeing. And um, I just got like this. When flo- is your birthday? A- April 11th and also 1964. So. What? Yeah. Oh, Annalisa. Yeah. <laughs> what? What? Um, so you just said shake and bake. And I just got this flood of memories of like 70s commercials of uh, <laughs> food commercials. I will say that my mom is kind of the opposite because the one part of she was a stay at home mom until she like read the feminine mystique by Betty Friedan and decided she needed to go to work in the 70s. And the only part of being a stay at home mom that she actually liked was the cooking. But like she we didn't nothing else like I had the store bought princess Halloween costumes like there was no crafty other stuff going on. So you started to appreciate food and think more about food and you came back to the states and you went 100 percent into focusing on food i i did i started a, a lunch delivery service in 91 and it was a complete fluke i had done um the food for my sister's baby shower and a friend who was a model in france had also moved back to dc so she couldn't come and so the next day i said well you know i'll bring you some leftovers since you couldn't come she's like oh you know i wish you could bring me lunch every day so the next day my brother-in-law had eaten the food and so i um made some stuff i i saw a picnic basket that i threw the food into and i went to the doctor's office and where she worked and she said, oh, hey, this is my friend Carla. She has a business. And I'm huh. standing there I'm like, what? <laughs> and then I said, they said, what's the name of it? And I looked at the lunch basket, at the picnic basket, and I said, the lunch basket. 
And they said, oh, when will you be back? And I looked them dead in the eyes and I said, tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. And so every day I got up, I made sandwiches and salads, and I put them in that same picnic basket, and I went door-to-door, hair salons, doctor's offices. And, and within a week, I had seven clients, and within two weeks, I had 14. And I did that for five years. Wow. You took a leap, like, in a, in a moment, split second. Mm-hmm. But then you decided to, to actually go to culinary school and go the formal become a sous chef and chef route. Did you see at the time that there was like this path that you wanted to follow or as you went, did you were you always thinking about, OK, now what's next? Like what's your what's your personality type? Do you plan ahead what all the next steps are or are you sort of in the moment thinking about them? I don't. I'm I'm definitely an in the moment person. Mm-hmm. I I don't think that I think when I look at my career, I I'm baffled sometimes because I would have never planned it this way. Huh. And I think that in a, in a sense for me that's good because I would be paranoid. I would just be mm-hmm. scared beyond belief. Mm-hmm. And what I realized about myself, I was always afraid of success because what does that mean? The pressures of success. So I was just just in the moment and doing and being. And the next thing I knew, it had been five years, and and I remember somebody had said to me, "You're such a hustler," and I was like, mm. "Oh my God, a hustler!" And I, I was like, oh, "What? That was just the ultimate insult." And I think when and it was somebody at one of my oldest clients in a barber shop, and for him it wasn't it wasn't an insult. He was actually complimenting me for just getting up and just doing what I did to make a living. But I, I heard it at the time as an insult. And it was at that moment I decided to go to culinary school. So how did you like being in the formal, like being a sous chef and a chef at some pretty fancy schmancy places versus running your own business and being a caterer? Um, uh, you know, what, what one fit you better? Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the structure. I enjoyed getting up and I enjoyed getting a paycheck, even if it was small, you know, because working for yourself, you, you were paying others, but yep. there's very little left for yourself. Yep. So I, I enjoyed that. I, um, I think when I started, even as an intern, there was working a 12 hour shift was nothing to me. So mm. my chef was like, Oh wow. You know, I was also older. So, um, and I'm saying older, I was at the time 30, 31, mm-hmm. so my work ethic was definitely um, really good. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had gotten a lot of responsibility because I had spent five years being my own boss. So now I could step into someone's business and understand why they're asking me to do certain things and I wouldn't question it. Yep. So yeah. I, I think that was good. I, I enjoyed being a sous chef and I was actually scared to become a chef um, because all eyes were on me. And, and I, in hindsight, I really think I became a chef too soon. I didn't really know how to manage. I didn't know how to run a kitchen. And it was, it was really a disservice to me. But nonetheless, at the time, I needed to make more money. Yeah. And I was going from $13.16 an hour to, I think, maybe something like 20000 a year or something small, mm. but it was still significant at the time. Was it that you didn't yet know how to, like, manage the staff or was it the business part of it? What was sort of what was the most challenging? 
It was really managing the staff and knowing, mm. because I didn't grow up in the restaurant world. Right. And for me, I, I thought I needed to go to culinary school because I needed a jump start. It's different if you worked up from a dishwasher or a line cook and you sort of matriculate through the stages at a restaurant and then you become a chef because you sort of know all of the roles that there are in the kitchen. I didn't, I didn't know that. Mm. So I really did depended on my sous chef and it was all this I was back in school all of a sudden but um but it was good it was I was always up for the challenge though uh so let's like take a little bit of a jump you go out and become a contestant on top chef what sort of motivated that or how did you make that happen you know I was working so much that I didn't even know about top chef I had gotten married a year and a half before top chef and Mm. it was around the holidays and I was just sort of flat out on the couch after the big holiday rush and my husband said oh have you seen this show top chef and I was like no so I watched seasons one through three just binge watching you know how they play all the seasons back to back so I went into season four and a friend said oh you should audition for top chef I saw this um big call And I was like, yeah, that would be good. But, you know, working so much, I never did anything about it. I had gotten a call one night. It was a long night. My sous chef had said that day, oh, I had a dream you were on Top Chef. I'm like, oh, it's so funny. Uh, Another friend was talking about that. That night I had a call on my phone. And it was, hey, I'm calling from Magical Elves and someone from Le Dame de it's, it's a, They were trying to say Le Dame de Scoffier, but they butchered it so badly. I had no idea what they were talking about, which is an organization that I'm a member of. Mm-hmm. And they said, are you interested? And I thought it was a crank call because what are the chances <laughs> that my sous chef says she had a dream that I was on Top Chef and somebody called that night? So I wasn't going to call them back. But I had the same message on another number, my cell phone and home. So I did the application process. And and then I went to a woman to ask for um, the president of LeDom. I went to ask for a recommendation letter. And I'm like, I never asked her for anything. And she was like, oh, my gosh, Carla, I was the one who told them about you. I'm like, oh, "Oh, what? It was crazy. Cool. I, I didn't seek it out. I had the interview and then things just sort of started to you know snowball and when they called me and said you've been selected I was like what and then I think at that point I was like oh my gosh no I can't do this because my biggest fear is being judged hmm well that show that was that was facing your fear Carla <laughs> facing it head on yes exactly and that's what I do and it was that whole thing of oh my gosh the universe is trying to get me to the next step America basically saw me you know, face my fear and get over it. And I remember the point when I was at the judges table, it was restaurant wars. I thought I was going to go home. It was between me and Radhika. And I remember thinking at that moment, no one has ever died at the judges table. I am processing that thought as I look at the judges. And I'm like, I can get through this. No one has ever died here. And uh. I didn't go home. And at that point, that's when I started to to do better in the competition because I'm like, you know, if you're on the top, you get feedback. If you're on the bottom, you get feedback. Mm-hmm. When you're in the middle, you get nothing. And right. I just started just being hungry for this feedback. And, and that's when everything turned for me. So, you know, you uh, on the all-star season that you did, you were a fan favorite. Um, 
your personality really just clicked with people. And I particularly love this philosophy that I've read about that you have about cooking with love and that it somehow it translates into the food your own how you feel when you're cooking it and it's kind of like on the one hand it's kind of woo woo and and I'm I'm not always woo woo but um I totally I believe that like I think that how you approach the things you're doing and your intention from deep you know inside really makes a difference in the outcome um and did you always have that philosophy or is it also part of the journey that you've you've sort of come to that understanding my journey i think when i read eat pray love i'm like oh my gosh that is so my journey and it all started from a really bad breakup uh, a relationship and i read marianne williamson's book and um yeah. a return to love i do leave lead my life like that when i when i was going to top chef i was reading Eckhart Tolle's awaken to a new earth and it was all about breath and being present and and that is that it, everything is a lesson, I believe. And I, it does sound woo-woo, but when I look back on it, at my life and how things have happened, and when I and I think about how I met my husband, I was on, I was on Match, and and I was only on there for a week, and we met, and this is the man that I ended up marrying. You're not going to believe it, Carla, but I met my husband on Match, and I just did a one-week trial, and that's how I met my husband. What you? Oh my God! You are Seriously. my sister. Seriously, <laughs> isn't that I wild? It. And this was back in the day when you, people didn't even have digital cameras, so we hadn't loaded our pictures or anything. Yes. Crazy, yes. right? Yeah. Wow. How long have you been married? Um, well, we've been together. We just had our seventeenth date anniversary, but we're having our ninth anniversary uh, in November. Okay. All right. So Matthew and I have been married for 10 years. We only dated for like nine months. Oh, wow. Okay. So he moves a little mm -hmm. faster than mine. <laughs> 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 Noted. <laughs> um, and also, I read Return to Love in the 90s, and like it changed my life for at least a few weeks. Like it completely recalibrated. <laughs> Like it recalibrated how I was responding to something going on in my life with a dude, of course. And it just, it actually did recalibrate me to have just way more like you do you, I'm going to do me, your you might not really work with my me, but that's, that's okay. You know, we can all move beyond this and it really helped. Uh, so there's two more things I really want to ask you about. Um, and I'll take the second one first, which is you opened a restaurant and you used Kickstarter as sort of your yes. mechanism. And that's, um, people don't realize, I don't think, how much work it is to make those things work. Everyone I've ever talked to who does one says, oh my God, you spend your life trying to make that number. So what inspired you to go that route versus a more traditional route? Well, I want to say, first off, people think because you're on television, you have cookbooks, you're doing all of this, that makes life and opportunities a lot easier than the layperson. It doesn't. It, mm. it, it honestly does not. The decision to do Kickstarter was my business partners, and I said, okay, um, if I do it, uh, then let's let's sort of use it as a marketing thing because I, n I always said I never wanted a restaurant, and I always felt like I was the smartest person in the room, quite frankly, for not doing a restaurant mm -hmm. because I know how hard they are. 
So when I decided to run the Paris Marathon, I was 40 years old, and and running a marathon is a lot of work. It's a big commitment. But I knew that if I committed to the the plane ticket, if I committed to getting a place to stay, I would go because I've already spent my money. Mm-hmm. So Kickstarter was kind of like that for me. If if people knew that I was doing this, there's no way that I would back out mm. because my word is my bond. So I call the Kickstarter backers my community of believers and supporters. Um, and so we we had we requested something like two hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars mm-hmm. as our goal, which was huge. Um, but what people don't realize is um, to open our restaurant, it was a million dollars. Oh wow! Right. So oh, wow. exactly, and you don't get two hundred and sixty-four, six, two hundred and fifty thousand. You you get a percentage of that because a percentage goes to Kickstarter. So when people say, "Oh, you chose this route versus versus the traditional route," no, uh, I mean it. It's very much the traditional route. We still needed um, investors, but um, it was the the Kickstarter people who honestly kept me going. Hmm. And it was so much work and I cried when we made our goal. I honestly didn't think we were going to. And it continues to be um, tough because now that the restaurant finally opened a year after we made our goal, we we have to um, now give our backers those rewards. And and that's going to be really expensive, but right. I and and I know they're they're asking where's my reward? We have not taken their money. We are, we're honoring them, but we're we're trying to get that all underway and everything. And so, it's a it's a process with Kickstarter. So would you do it again if you were going to do a big project like that? I would do it again. I would not have the um, amount that we asked for the goal as high. Mm. I would have it lower. And um, I mean, I'm also the one who will. I was like, okay, let me have a party because I need to clean my house. You know, right? <laughs> so I, I need outside motivation. Yeah, that's not me. <laughs> uh, although I moved to declutter, so I guess I'm not one to talk. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm a huge pack rat because I see, I see potential in everything. Even in people, I I love people, and I don't see broken people. I see people who are part of a journey. Mm-hmm. So I and I collect people. My husband was like, "Why are all of your boyfriends around?" I'm like, <laughs> even the one that drove you to Marianne Williamson. <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm telling you because that person. I'm like, we were friends before. Yeah. And he was just a lesson. I I don't see him as the enemy. I can honestly see people who have made me angry and hurt me, and I can move past that. Because Mm -hmm. if I've moved past it in my heart, I have truly healed. So that's how I look at that. I think that sounds very grown up. And and um, I think Marianne would approve, as probably would Elizabeth Gilbert. So. <laughs> and so now you've been on the Chew for five years. Yes. And it's you just you've got a lot going on in a lot of places. Does the Chew film in L.A.? No, it films in New York. But the Chew is one of the most fun jobs. And and again, I had another growth spurt because that was hard. The first mm-hmm. two seasons were incredibly difficult because it it's like, unlike Top Chef where there's a camera catching everything that you're doing, you're not talking to the camera. You're, right, just, right. you're just doing what you do. 
Whereas when you're hosting a show, you are talking, you are cooking, you are interviewing, you are connecting with the audience, and it is like a three, sometimes five ring circus. So it's really mm-hmm. difficult. And the other folks who are on there, I'm, I, I know most of them. I mean, th- most of them had more television experience, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Michael Simon and Mario Batali, they had been on the Food Network yes. for at least a decade. Clinton Kelly had been on television as well as he had done um, What Not to Wear, and he'd been on other shows. Daphne and I were the only ones who, you know, were experiencing this for the first time. And she had done a little television Mm -hmm. because she had, uh, I want to say, I can't remember the name of the show, but she had done a little television. But we didn't have, the first two seasons, we didn't have media training at all. Wow. No. I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine how I felt. You know, I do cooking classes and I love to teach. I've taught hundreds of cooking classes at Sur La Table and my culinary school, Academy de Cuisine and all of these different places. And I knew the disconnect that I was having doing the cooking demos and what I was projecting to the audience. And it just wasn't the person I usually am when I teach. Mm -hmm. So I just found it incredibly disheartening. And I thought I was going to get fired. Every day I thought I was going to get fired. And I was in a temporary apartment. And I said, I cannot afford New York City without a job. So I refused to move. And when I finally did move, you know how much it cost me to move? No, I can't imagine it was good. $75. What? That's how much... That's how little stuff I had because I said, if I move, I need to be able to move at the drop of a hat with a car to get out of this expensive city. Oh, my God. You just filled your trunk like Carla's life was in your trunk. That's, exactly. That's exactly. crazy. But I guess five years in, you're you're feeling pretty confident. Yeah. I um, my, my moment was um, season four. Uh, the beginning of, at the end of season three, or maybe it's the beginning of season four, and I kind of had a moment where I had gotten frustrated, and I believe that frustration is the ability to do work. Mm. And it was the moment when Gladys Knight had come on. She was cooking with Michael Simon, and Michael Simon made a smothered chicken dish <gasps> as a Southern woman oh. who is from the oh. '60s, and I have been listening to this woman you know, for decades, I thought it was a slap in the face. And I was so upset that I called a meeting. Wow. And, uh, and there were some other things that had happened as well. Oh, and the other thing that had happened, the first rehearsal, I got to host a game, which I was really excited because that meant that they trusted me. And mm-hmm. they, they were like, oh, Carla, we're going to let you do something else other than cook. And Clinton was always the, the, the game host. And then I ran through this portion of the rehearsal. And at the end, they said, oh, I'm sorry. That wasn't supposed to be you. That's for Clinton. Oh. And I was like, I will not cry. I will not cry. I will not cry. I honestly was so upset and I went to my, uh, even it, I still get a little choked up now, but I was so upset and I go up to my room. But at the end, this is the happy part of the story. At the end of season five, the last show that we taped, I got to host a game. And I was like, oh my gosh, this has gone full circle. And Daphne looked at me and she's like, are you crying? Aww. I was like, yes. 
She's like, why are you crying? I'm like, I got to host a game. And she's like, what? And I told her the story, which I didn't share really with anybody. And I said, I have finally come full circle with this. And I was so, I was so happy and excited. And the same thing with the Gladys Knight story. I called a meeting with the executive producers and I told them that either they didn't trust me to do that interview with Gladys Knight or they didn't think that it would be important for me to do it. Either right. way, it was their report card. And right. I needed them and I needed them to to understand my frustration about that. And then at the end of this whole thing of me being upset because I I was upset and I wanted to share with them what I wanted to get off my chest because if I was going to be fired, I didn't want to sit at home and say, I wish I had said blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. So I was going to let it all out right then. And at the end of all of that, the executive producers sort of clapped their hands and said, thank you. Now we can get to work. Hmm. It was really about me and sort of coming into my own and my authentic self. And then you felt from there forward that that was sincere that you you noticed a change absolutely absolutely and and even my performance changed and so every day that I go to work and no matter what I do when I do an interview or when I even if I'm doing if it's if it's something like this or a written interview my prayer every day is authenticity because that's the only thing that I can offer that no one can take from me yeah and so that's that's my game Every time, every day. How do you think you got through that fear of the pressure that success would bring, you know, early in your career? And is it something you kind of dealt with and put away? Or, or do you still feel that even now that you're really well established? Uh, I, I didn't get over it mm. in my career initially. I mean, I, I, I sort of felt like the imposter syndrome, like mm-hmm. where I kept saying yes. I just kept being busy. And I realized how afraid of success I was when I got the chew because I remember when and this is this again when I when I think about how I got the chew I won fan favorite on Top Chef right I had already interviewed for the chew they said no they came back and I did a chemistry test with Mario Michael Clinton and Daphne and we were together for 20 minutes. Six days later, they announced us as the cast of The Chew. Mm. I turned to Matthew, my husband, and I said, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do with this? And I was immobilized with fear. And it was like, because whatever I was going to do was now on just this big stage. And, um, and I said, I have to just sort of accept that my career is going to move on and and I'm going to grow in the public eye. So for me, and my six word novel um, became Say Yes, Adventure Follows, Then Growth. So success to me looks different. Um, Success to me is growing as a person. It's not necessarily um, the money or whatever, but I think the pressure that I feel, the more people who see what I'm doing or who are looking at my career, the more the expectations rise. Mm-hmm. And, and I always put myself in that situation. Can you repeat that six word novel? I loved that. Yeah. So my six word novel is say yes, adventure follows, then growth. Couldn't say it any better. So I really want to thank you for sharing all those stories. I just feel like they, there is this really wonderful universality to it. I, I truly appreciate um, you sharing all of that. 
Well, thank you for having me and thank you for listening and thank you for being a platform for women and our authentic struggles and joys and and all the things that we go through. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Everybody, that was Carla Hall, and she is going to be at Blog Her Food this week in Austin, Texas, and it is going to be amazing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Who She Knows, a She Knows Media podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Camahort-Page, Chief Community Officer of She Knows Media. Please tweet me at Elisa C or leave a message for us on either the blog her or She Knows Media Facebook page. Or now you can email us at podcast at She We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.